The United States accounts for 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. In 2014, more than 2 million people were incarcerated in the United States. Of those, 40% were African-American men. According to the Sentencing Project, African-American males born today have a 1 in 3 chance of going to prison in their lifetimes if incarceration trends continue. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the currents end. And dips his wings in the orange sun rays and dare to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The free bird thinks of another breeze. And the trade winds soft through the sighing trees. And the fat worms waiting on the dawn bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams, and his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. And now for my next number, I'd like to return to the classics. Robert Wesley Brandt Show, a round table of wisdom where people from all across the planet, from all walks of life, and from all religious and sacred traditions convene for spiritual conversation.
So here we go. Come on in from your world and listen. He's the same man, same message, same mission. He's channeling the cosmos on mystic and soul. He's ringing the power and sharing the wisdom that never, never gets old. I'm talking about Robert Wesley Branch. He don't mind taking a chance. Robert Wesley Branch, he's here with his crew. So be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Robert Wesley Branch Show. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Greetings and happy Saturday to you. And thank you for being with us in this sacred space this morning. I appreciate you, and I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you a little story. For 47 of my 50 years, I have lived in the seventh, seventh state to ratify the United States Constitution. This state was one of the original 13 colonies. This state was formed by Englishman George Calvert, first Lord of Baltimore in the early 17th century, 1632 to be exact. And the state was intended to be a refuge for persecuted Catholics from England. And that state, where I have spent 47 of my 50 years, is named Maryland. Maryland. After Henrietta Maria of France, who was the wife of Charles I of England. Maryland. There are roughly 6 million people living in Maryland today. And in the state of Maryland, there are 27 correctional facilities, 27. And one of them is the North Branch Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland, also known as NBCI, North Branch Correctional Institution. It is a super high-tech maximum security prison, also known as a hypermax prison. Some of you may have seen that particular facility featured on a number of popular shows on cable television. The average daily prison population at NBCI is just under 1,400 inmates, and one of those inmates is my friend, a young man named Reno. And Reno is in his mid-30s. Reno was born and raised in Chicago and grew up in a household where his father physically abused his mother. And as a very young boy, Reno witnessed his father beat his mother to death. Just let that sink in. He watched his father beat his mother to death. 
Reno says that he remembers putting his head like right up in front of the television screen because his mother kept in the midst of her beating. She kept saying, don't look, baby, don't look, don't look. And so he put his head right up to the TV screen, almost like right up against it. So he couldn't see what was happening. But of course, he could hear it. And his father was beating his mother to her death. And soon thereafter, Reno went off to live with his older brother and his brother's wife and their children. And since Reno's older brother was a military man, he was often away from home for long periods of time. And in his absence, Reno's brother's wife would verbally abuse Reno and treat him differently than she did her own children with Reno's brother. And Reno went into prison at age 18. He was convicted as an accessory to a robbery that ended in a man being murdered. Reno was one of five men, young boys really, who took part in this violent crime. And because Reno was the lookout, he got caught. And because Reno refused to give up his co-conspirators because he didn't quote unquote snitch, Reno ended up being the only person put on trial for the crime. And because the felony murder rule was applied to his case, Reno was the only person convicted of that man's murder. And Reno was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And he was shipped off to prison at age 18. And he has been in prison ever since. And he will remain imprisoned for the remainder of his natural life on this earth. For many years, Reno's older brother was his only real steady, frequent, and regular visitor. And Reno could always count on his older brother to show up on the so-called family day at the prison. And then one day, he did not arrive. He gave no advance notice. He left no word at the visitor's desk, nothing. And Reno never saw his older brother again. It would be months before he even found out, before he even learned that his brother had died of a heart attack. And Reno told me that while he was out in the prison yard one day, shortly after learning of his older brother's death, that every fiber of his being told him to run for the fence so that he would be precipitously shot by the hawk-eyed correctional officers in the high guard watch towers that police the yard. That way, Reno said he could end his agony with a bullet to the back. And that was some time ago. Reno seems better these days. I receive his phone calls on the prison telephone monitoring system. I hear the recording when I pick up the phone. This call is from a correctional institution in the state of Maryland and is being recorded. I go to the post office and get the money orders to keep cash on his prison books so that he can 
enjoy regular commissary. Last year, when the prison finally allowed inmates to buy PlayStations, I made sure Reno had one and all the games he desired to go along with that system. And he was like a kid in a candy store. And in that moment, however brief and fleeting it may have been for him, I sensed that he was able to summon up some joy inside his tears. Now, as a producer, I have worked in prisons making television shows, documentaries, but I didn't know any of those inmates personally. I do have a cousin who was at one time considered a bit of a regional drug kingpin. He's now in prison for life. And although I have received letters from him and have written him back, I have never actually made the trip to visit him where he is housed in yet another of Maryland's 27 correctional institutions. Reno is the first person that I know personally that I love that I ever visited at a prison. And to this day, he's the only person I continue to visit in a physical prison. I have surrendered my valuables to a steel locker and waited my turn in the visitor's waiting room. I have stood in line with weary fathers, heartbroken mothers, and hopeful lovers and friends as we each and as we all slowly inched our way toward the metal detectors before having our bodies patted down and groped for incoming contraband. I have heard and have been shaken by the steel cages opening before me as I proceeded to the open, chilly room where the inmates eagerly receive and affectionately greet their visitors. One hug at the beginning and one hug at the end. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of y'all know. And I remember the quake and tremble of my body, shuddering as those same steel cages slammed shut behind me as I left behind my time with Reno. I have sat there staring into the face of a man who knows that I know that he will most probably never set foot outside of the daily control of his captors onto the fertile ground we sing about as the land of the free and the home of the brave. You see, his free space is confined to the day room and to the chow hall and to the showers and to the exercise yard. And that's it, brothers and sisters. His home, savage and smelly as it may seem to me, to us, the place where he lays his head and empties his bowels and passes the minutes and the hours and the days and the weeks and the months and the years. Reno's home is encircled 
with triple layers of steel-enforced barbed wires. And those fences are electrified with voltages high enough to kill you upon human touch. Just imagine that. Imagine that, brothers and sisters. In 1910, in southern Fairfax, Virginia, work began on a prison that would come to be known as the Lorton Reformatory. The idea was to build a facility on a 1,155-acre tract of land north of the Occoquan River that would house inmates from the neighboring District of Columbia. That's my hometown. And the prison would be operated by the D.C. Department of Corrections. And the reason for this new prison, just outside of Washington, was that a few years earlier, in 1908, a special penal commission appointed by President Theodore Roosevelt found that the conditions at the D.C. jail and workhouse were deplorable. So the United States Congress acted to have this new facility built to usher in a change of philosophy and treatment of prisoners in Washington. So in 1916, the Lorton Reformatory opened its doors to inmates. Now, those of us Washington locals refer to the prison as simply Lorton, L-O-R-T-O-N, Lorton. But the true and legal name of the facility is the D.C. Workhouse and Reformatory. The D.C. Workhouse and Reformatory. And because it was situated in Lorton, Virginia, the facility was referred to as the Lorton Reformatory. But again, I want to underscore here that the framers and the architects and the urban planners, the politicians, they named the project the D.C. Workhouse and Reformatory. My father has five brothers. And of these five paternal uncles, one has been a lifelong drug addict. And as a result of his decades-long substance abuse, he has spent a great many of his 65 years on the planet as an inmate, incarcerated, in somebody's prison somewhere, jailed. And in the 1970s, this same uncle was imprisoned at Lorden. He was an inmate at the D.C. Workhouse and Reformatory. Now, back in the day, the quote-unquote work on the new workhouse, the one being built in Lorton, was done by the prisoners who were already housed in the D.C. jail. They were the laborers for this new prison. They built the symmetrical brick dormitory complexes that would eventually become their cells using bricks manufactured at the on-site kiln, K-I-L-N kiln complex. Those inmates crafted their own cages. And until 1997, that is where Washington, D.C. would send its convicted criminals to Lorden 
and my uncle was one of them. I remember my father's mother, the same grandmother who hurt me with her words when I was a small boy, the same grandmother who came to me last year when I was at the lowest point in my life and told me, it's not your time. I remember my grandmother on more than one occasion making the drive down to Washington from her home in Pittsburgh to visit her son, my uncle, at Lorton. I remember my father driving her down to the jail, and I especially remember the excruciatingly agonizing and desperate look on my grandmother's face when she returned from seeing her caged son. In 1911, the Lorton and Occoquan Railroad began operating a seven-mile line running between the D.C. Workhouse and Reformatory and the wharf at Occoquan, Virginia. This became known as the L&O Railroad, and it was created to, check this out, it was created to transport prisoners throughout neighboring counties and cities across the state of Virginia. A whole railroad was created to transport prisoners throughout neighboring counties and cities across the state of Virginia and to move inmates throughout the entire Lorton complex from the workhouse to the brickyard and from the brickyard to other prison industry facilities located on the site. And until it was decommissioned in 1977, the Eleanor Railroad also used inmates to haul coal, transport finished brick out of the prison, and to even carry sewage away from the facility. Caged people, controlled in herds, and corralled into productive, quote-unquote, useful criminals. Back-breaking work for pennies on the hour or, and this was mostly the case, for absolutely no pay at all. And this cheap, free labor made the local and regional economy go round. It was their cheap, free labor all those bent backs that made the local and regional economy go round. This is not a new story, brothers and sisters, particularly for African Americans in this country. The last prisoners hauled their final load of cargo and said goodbye to their cages at the D.C. Workhouse and Reformatory in 2001 when the prison closed its doors. In 1978, I had been on the planet for 12 years. And on November 2nd of that year, 1978, I remember watching a documentary on television called Scared Straight. Scared Straight. And Scared Straight was filmed at Rawway State Prison in New Jersey. Some of y'all remember this. And in the film, a group of juvenile delinquents spent three hours with some of the prison's roughest (laughs) 
and toughest lifers. Guys who were never getting out of jail. And during those three hours, the lifers literally tried to scare the shit out of those teenagers. Their goal was to scare them straight, to give them such a rough ride that they would never again want to step foot inside another prison. Scare Trait was a televised diversion program aimed at changing the trajectory of the lives of that group of young thugs, yes, and by extension to shift the course of criminal activity by all the juvenile delinquents who would be watching at home on television. The hope was to get America's errant youth on the right side of the law by providing them with an authentic prison experience with real prisoners interacting with delinquent youth who were potentially on the road to incarceration themselves. And in 1978, Scared Straight, that documentary was cutting edge television. And as a 12 year old watching at home myself, I must tell you it worked because I was literally scared straight. Those images, that experience seared into my soul in a way that made me never ever want to become incarcerated in my 50 years. I have never had handcuffs placed around my wrists. I have never been arrested. I have never been inside of a police car. I have never been questioned inside a police station. I have never been fingerprinted. I have never been detained in the holding cell of a jail. I have, however, committed crimes for which I was never caught, never charged, never prosecuted, and never jailed. I have broken the law many, many times. As an addict, I bought illegal drugs from marijuana dealers for nearly 30 years. And I copped from cocaine dealers for over a decade. And nearly all of the drug dealers I knew, up close and personal, the ones I knew so well, they would come to my house, knock on my door, come inside and put up their feet. Nearly all of those young black men had criminal records and served time in jail and in prison. As a teenager, I purchased marijuana in open air drug markets right under the noses of the neighborhood cops. And as a grown ass man, I have bought cocaine from complete strangers on inner city street corners in the wee small hours of the night and early morning and in broad daylight in downtown Washington, D.C., just steps away from some of the world's most iconic monuments and memorials. And on too many occasions, brothers and sisters, I'm sad to tell you this, but this is the truth. On too many occasions, I have overconsumed beer, wine, and hard liquor and gotten into my car and driven off into the wild night, completely intoxicated, driving under the influence of alcohol 
and drugs. So while I am not a convicted criminal, I am far from innocent. I have not always walked on the right side of the law. I was a fool who never got caught. Even so, my behavior was part of a bigger problem plaguing our communities and our country. As a drug user, I was part of a larger system, a system that is decimating the moral, spiritual, physical, and psychological fiber of our lives here in America. And this system is called the prison industrial complex. And even more specific to my point here today, the preschool to prison pipeline within that prison industrial complex, the pathway too many young black boys travel upon from birth to behind bars. And that is exactly what we are talking about this morning from birth to behind bars, the preschool to prison pipeline, how we break those soul ties, the preschool to prison pipeline, how we break those soul ties, keeping it conscious with me today. And today's conversation from New York, New York, big city of dreams. Everything in New York ain't always what it seems. My sister, television executive producer and business development expert, Ms. Michelle Wilson. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God, Robert, what an emotional story. And so thank you for sharing that. And all blessings to him because I'm sure he needs your support and many other people's support. So thank you for sharing that. And welcome, everyone, to the Robert Wesley Branch Show. I'm excited to be here this Saturday. Feeling good. (laughs) I'm glad you're feeling good and I'm glad you're here. And from Tallahassee, Florida, my brother, singer-songwriter, civil rights investigator, and the encourager of your soul, Mr. Dante Bonner, is here with us. Welcome to you. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Robert. I have to admit, I, I have tears in my eyes. Being a black male myself and hearing you talk, I connect with a lot of the things that you said and you know, in terms of that young man. Um, having family members that have gone to jail, mm-hmm. being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and some of them being murdered, um, not snitching, and as a result, going to jail. And just reliving the fact of myself being a black man, being concerned, could I be next? Right. Walking a path of making sure that I'm not in a position where I can hear those clinks of bars mm-hmm. in my sophomore year in high school um, they took the students to a jail I was living in uh, Jacksonville Alabama about 45 minutes outside of Birmingham Alabama an hour and a half from Atlanta off the I-10 I-20 and interstate and one of our field trips we were taken to a maximum security prison near Birmingham just as a context to show that you know prison is not a country club, prison is not, you know, a luxury hotel, mm-hmm. to show us as high school students on what prison actually is, 
and we had the opportunity to go through the jail cell. And seeing, for me, majority of black men behind bars, some of them in solitary confinement, some of them locked up. There were people that, were, that looked like me, that were young in age. There were persons that were, looked like my grandfather and all points in between. And all of them were in there for various different reasons. Some of them were institutionalized from the standpoint of this was home for them, so they felt fine, and other persons were scared because this was a new environment for them. They've already been in there four or five years, but felt uncomfortable there. And I remember talking to even one of the inmates. I was probably 15 at the time, so he was like 18, and he was scared, right? you know, because of making of a simple mistake. He didn't think anything of it, but it cost him 10 years of his life. Right. And they had that impact. And that was the whole point of the field trip, was for you to understand that the choices that you make, whether they're intentional or not, can have devastating consequences. Mm -hmm. And to get this mentality, especially in the community, that, you know, it's a badge of honor to go to prison. I don't know how that developed, but we'll probably talk about that during the show. But to change that narrative that, no, this is not a place that you want to be. No, this is not a fun place. If you are so misfortunate to come, you know, come here, you're not going to be chilling. Right. It's hard. It's, it's, very, it's very cold. It's very direct. You have a regimen. You, you have no choice. Whatever you're being told to do, that's what you're going to do. And to hear the young man's story, my heart just, and I just started crying, you know, because it's sad that that's too many of our black men's stories. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we have to change. And it's unfortunate that not only is he a victim of just other circumstances, but also the way our laws have been written, the way they have been basically throw the book at you without the compassion, without the, the understanding of a dealing with a case-by-case scenario. Everything is just very cut and dry, very cookie-cutter, without looking at the particular facts. And that affects me as well as so many other female families as well. And I'm glad we're going to have the opportunity to have this conversation today so we can shed some light and hopefully you know, change some mindsets in terms of so we can um, have some healing and break this cycle. Mm -hmm. I found I was stunned when Reno told me, I've known him for a long time. And when I first met him, he told me that, of course, he told me his story, which I told you today. And he told me that of the five brothers that were involved in that crime, there were no guns involved. This man was actually stomped to death in the course of, these young boys committing this robbery. And Reno told me that not one of those dudes has ever come to visit him in prison. Well, I know that. Not well, I know one that. of those dudes. And I'm like, man, you kept their secret. And not one of them came to say, thank you. Not one. They've just gone on about their lives. And yet his whole life stopped that day. And I thought, wow, that is yeah. just, as a student of human nature, that fascinates me. That fascinates me. It's almost a tragic circumstance. 
it sounds out of the books of Shakespeare, of, <laughs> or you know, of um, a prolific writer of the story of a. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's the tragic yeah, circumstance. You know, I don't know, but one of the things. Yep, I would hope that um, somewhere along the line that those young men paid paid him back in hopefully their success. It's sad to say, but sometimes people need events to turn them around. And if there's anything that I would hope is not that their lives would be stopped, but that they would that that was a moment that that his sacrifice meant something. Do you know what I mean? Meant something positive. I do. And that would be my hope. It might sound odd, but that would be my hope. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know those gentlemen, and I don't uh, know it, what's in their heart. I do know this, though, and I'm not wishing anything ill upon anybody on this planet. I just know energy, and I know that when you continue to live your life with that kind of incident in your past— and that kind of unrepentant, just that kind of loop that is not closed by even going back and saying thank you to somebody. Mm-hmm. There are things that happen to you. Mm-hmm. You know, my friend Judy told me a long yeah. time ago. Yes, okay, let me just, I'm just here to tell you. There are things that happen to you in life. My friend Judy told me mm-hmm. 30 years ago. She said, Robert, this is when I was a very young and spiteful person. And I would get you back. You hear me? I was a, a vengeful MF. If you did something to me, I was working on it. You better believe I was working on how I was going to get you back. This was before I became the spiritual man that I am today. And uh, she was like, Robert, relax. She said, life will take care of so-and-so. Life will take care of them. And that right yep. there is the truth. Because you wonder why some people grow cancers in their body and have tumors on their body. It's because of things like that. It's because of that unresolved Mm -hmm. energy in you that is not healed. That's what happens to you. So we don't really have to worry about those brothers because I guarantee you they're, they might be quote unquote free, but their lives have not been a cakewalk because that loophole to leave that open like that, it just causes things to happen to you in life. So I know that to be true. I know that to be true. And to speak on that, Robert, one of our problems is the fact that we we want immediate vengeance. We'll hear life will take care of them, and we'll look like, well, no, I, I need for them to suffer now. And then you put your hands in something, and then you end up making the, making it hard worse for yourself as opposed to the vindictiveness that you were trying to inflict upon someone else. And so we have to be very careful, you know, concerning that. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a very close friend of mine and talking about, Someone did something that was undermining and they're parting ways, but they're keeping their information to them because of the fact that they released it. That person's going to lose their job and that's going to lose their livelihood and everything along the lines. And it was amazing to me that you were talking about his friends not coming back to him. This thing, the person has no sense of gratification. And it's like, do you still not understand that I could have a bad moment and say, you know what, I'm going to go and talk to the police. I'm going to go tell my employer. I still have this information that even though I'm already suffering, that if I were to tell this information, your life, and and including with, with all the things that you may have suffered from the energy that you have released, his own personal convictions are the reason why those young men are still out. Yes, and, and because there's no statute of limitation, because there's no statute of limitation on murder, no at any moment he could t- give those names and those guys' lives would be completely changed. 
but he's never done it. Right. So, but, mm-hmm. is, but he's never done that, and and that's the for like a, the code of the street, if you will. And uh, like I said, I have family members who live by that code. That we we've had some recent deaths uh, in the last year or so. That you know, some of you I've, I've talked about recently, and some of that was was a result of that. And they are not giving up names. They are willing to go to jail, not giving up particular names. And if you're, you're sacrificing someone who it seemingly does not care about you, but that's a code, the mentality that's been developed. And despite all this, my concern is not for the ones that are in the position that wrong place, wrong time, if you will, Nate, but for those choices that we made that knowingly made those choices, and, and as a result of that, we have suffered immensely being in jail for an exorbitant amount of time for the rest of our lives. Or, and not just the damage that it's doing to yourself, but the ripple effects of your family and your loved ones and the generation is now as a result of you being in that particular position. It's, 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 Let me ask you a question. That's why our communities are crippling. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever driven beyond the speed limit? Yeah. Have you ever failed to stop at a stop sign? Yeah. Have we've you, all done it. We, we've all made those particular choices. Have you? That, I'm, that just, just we have not been Don't skip to the end of the line. Just go with me here. <laughs> have you ever run a red light? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can you think of any other law that you've broken that you, in this moment, are willing to confess to or share? No, 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 Have you ever stolen anything from a store? No. Have you ever taken a piece of paper, a pen, or any office supply home that wasn't yours, that was for the complete use of the office? I've done it before. Okay. So, many times when we talk about these things, we use very extreme examples that result like you just did and like I did that result in people going to jail. And yet we all are one, (laughs) well, not all, but many of us are one opportunity or one uh, incident away from being caught with some of the things that we routinely do all the time. You're a black man in America, as am I. If you run that stop sign in your neighborhood or run that red light, it is by the grace of God that you are not pulled over and that you don't end up like Eric Garner or Keith Lamont Scott or Trayvon Martin or any of the other brothers who we can name, Alton Sterling, Philando Castillo, Terrence Crutcher. The list goes on and on and on. Amadou Diallo. It is by the grace of God that any minor infraction doesn't end up in your at the minimum incarceration and at the maximum your death. So it's, I I raise that to say that it's the evolution for me is to begin to discuss the phenomenon, the plague, the situation, not from a standpoint of these things happening to other people, but that they're actually it's we're all in this as one we're all in this and we all contribute in our own way to what is happening. It's a very complex Michelle mentioned to me yesterday uh, that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about this. And it's very true. It's a very complex issue. There's a lot of complexity here and yet there are some 
some facts and I just want to share some thoughts here. This is from an article that I read and it's funny. This article was written in 1998. That's 18 years ago. And it's just as true today as it was 18 years ago. It's called the prison industrial complex written by a man named Eric Schlosser, S C H L O S S E R Eric Schlosser in the nation magazine. This is what he says. The enormous increase in America's inmate population can be explained in large part by the sentences given to people who have committed nonviolent offenses. Crimes that in other countries would usually lead to community service, fines or drug treatment, or would not be considered crimes at all, in the United States now lead to a prison term. By far the most expensive form of punishment, he goes on to write in later paragraphs, Three decades after the war on crime began, the United States has developed a prison industrial complex, a set of bureaucratic. Now, he's going to define prison industrial complex. So just listen carefully to this. Three decades after the war on crime began, the United States has developed a prison industrial complex, a set of bureaucratic, political and economic interests that encourage increased spending on imprisonment, regardless of the actual need. The prison industrial complex is not a conspiracy guiding the nation's criminal justice policy behind closed doors. It is a confluence of special interests that has given prison construction in the United States a seemingly unstoppable momentum. It is composed of politicians, both liberal and conservative, who have used the fear of crime to gain votes. Underline that. Circle it. Exclamation point. It is composed of politicians, both liberal and conservative. Amen. Okay. Who have yes, used sir. the fear of crime. I'm thinking of Donald Trump and his whole law and order rallying cry. Who have used the fe- fear of people of color. Exactly. Who have used the fear of crime to gain votes. It is also composed of impoverished rural areas where prisons have become a cornerstone of economic development. It is also composed of private companies that regard the roughly $35 billion spent each year on corrections, not as a burden on American taxpayers, but as a lucrative market. It is also comprised of government officials whose fiefdoms or fiefdoms have expanded along with the inmate population. Let that sink in. That is the prison industrial complex. It's not just the prison. It's every industry that grows up around the supporting and the maintaining of the prison. That's why I talked about that Illinois railroad. They built a railroad to transport prisoners. Think about that, brothers and sisters. That's industry. And there it is. And that you said it there. That is industry. And once you've gotten to a point that you spell out that whole word industry, you're never going to get rid of it. Right. And I would say by hook or by crook, they will fight like for their individual lives to make sure that that industry stays alive, because there is no way that our Society within America is going to let $35 billion, think about that, just fade away. And so ultimately, unless there is something to replace, or ultimately, unless we begin to make ourselves not a product of that industry, 
it is not going to come to an end. Exactly. Right. And Michelle, to your point, look at where those prisons are to create that industry. It's in small rural areas. Exactly. That because there's no other type of economy, that is the economy. So if we take that, all the persons that go work at the prisons, the security guards, the food preparers, all the things that go on and maintaining that, and you, you put, take those places, then all of a sudden now the economic boom of that little town is now gone because it's been removed. So it ties that into that. Exactly. I think just to underscore exactly what Dante just spoke on from that same article, uh, Eric Schlosser writes, prison jobs have slowed the exodus from small towns by allowing young people to remain in the area. The job brings health benefits and a pension. Working as a correctional officer is one of the few ways that men and women without college degrees can enjoy a solid middle-class life there. Although prison jobs are stressful and dangerous, they are viewed as a means of preserving local communities. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's why you got the politicians who are lobbying to have prisons built in their rural areas for that very reason. For that very reason. Let me take a break. We have a special guest today. I want to take a break and prepare for our special guest. So we're going to move deeper into this conversation when we come back. So just sit back. We'll be back in about two or three minutes. Take a listen. And now for my next number, I'd like to return to the classics. You are listening to the Robert Wesley Brand Show. Inspiration, wisdom, encouragement, and empowerment. simple gesture speaks to respect and respect speaks for itself introducing the new jeep altitude editions style looks better with substance enjoying breakfast together is a pretty wonderful thing but when you have a picky eater we'll touch this it can be a bit of a dance we'll touch this we'll touch that Ego time. Ego waffles can win over the pickiest of eaters, so everyone can enjoy breakfast together. Can't touch this. <laughs> Lego my ego.
humans. Some of us are great athletes, others not so much. Which is why at Liberty Mutual Insurance, auto policies come with features like new car replacement and guaranteed repairs. See what else comes standard at LibertyMutual.com. Liberty Mutual Insurance. Responsibility. What's your policy? Live from Ocean City, Maryland, this is the Robert Wesley Branch Show. Inspiration, wisdom, encouragement, and empowerment. Welcome back. I'm Robert Wesley Branch here with me today. Michelle Wilson and Brother Dante Bonner is also with us. I want to take a call from one of our callers, 314-381. Go ahead with your comment or question. Well, I was going to make a comment on the prison pipeline. I was going to also make a comment on another thing, too. Mm -hmm. But the the thing is, with you have these black communities. That's majority black, 80, 70, 89% black, where you have all white police departments. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, these whites are coming from these outlying areas where they build prisons. You know, you don't want to build prisons in the hood where you can put people in the hood to work. They're out there, like you said. But cops come in, and they work overtime to send your children to the prisons where their mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers and uncles and aunts are working at these minimum, these middle-class wage and salary with benefit jobs. Mm-hmm. And that there is that commodity. The children are used as a commodity in the public schools that leads them into this. And here's another thing, too. When you have individuals that's coming from these outlying areas working and taking advantage of your public service jobs that your mother and father, who owns a house in that community, is paying taxes on, and then they take that revenue, that, that wages and salary back out into the outskirts, into the suburban areas, and they are building homes and building up equity. And then after this go on in your community, your parents' community, mm-hmm. and you're not going to move there because there's no job, then their houses depreciate, then you're going to go to the suburb and try to get a loan to pay them for the equity that they use with your money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you got to beg the bank for a loan, whereas you can buy a house and pay the equity, which was really your mother and father equity in the beginning. You, you, <laughs> it's a cycle. Right. Yeah, brother, you raise a point I've never really thought about. Why do you think there aren't more prisons in our own communities? Why is that? 
because your politicians say not in my backyard, which is crazy. If it's your trip, and here's another thing: when your kids, when your kids go to these prisons, what follows them out there? Community development block grant money, where they can develop their communities, and your communities are left to deteriorate and have potholes in the streets. Yeah, you are absolutely right, because the brother who I was talking about at the top of the show, who's in prison for the rest of his life, he's in Cumberland, Maryland, which is way out into the the rural part of Western Maryland. And he always tells me how racist and just straight up, you know, white supremacist these correctional officers are and how low the education level is of them. And they finally get a little bit of quote unquote power and they just treat you like shit 24 hours a day. And so I think about that as I hear your comment. I think about that. And this happened to black folks. I don't know how in the world blacks got themselves. And I'm going to be frankly, how did blacks get themselves in this predicament? And not only get into the predicament, why do they continue to dwell in this predicament? Mm-hmm. And this is just not this is just not central to the United States. When you look over in some African countries, the same thing goes on, too. It's something in the mind. Yes. It's something in the mind. Yes, yes, yes. Well, how do you see our history of slavery in this country contributing to something in the mind that you speak of? Well, slavery is, is but you know, I'm going to tell you something. During the time of slavery, in the 1600s, you had black businesses that were doing tremendous. Matter of fact, you had more black businesses per capita than you do now. Mm-hmm. During the height of Jim Crow, slavery, and so on and so on. But something has came upon the mindset of black people. Like I say, how in the world are you going to be... 90% of a community, and all the po- police is white, all the firefighters are white, all city hall is white, all the public works is white, and the school district. What is wrong with that picture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something. There's... And now look at these foreigners that's in your community extracting these resources, your gas marks. They are not, you don't see their kids at the red light intersection with pots, pans, buckets, and helmets begging for money for sports fees, uniforms, and travel expenses. That's your truth. And then when blacks move out of the suburbs, they're still doing the same thing. Something is wrong with this picture. So, brother, what do you say to the people who are hearing what you're saying right now and are saying to themselves, oh, here he goes, blaming the victim again? How do you respond to that kind of feedback? Well, the thing is, and I'm going to say it like this, Asians are not going to relieve you of your suffering. I didn't say whites. I'm saying Asians, Latinos now, because economically, on a social economic scale, they have moved ahead of blacks. It's not no longer whites. It's everybody else. And only you can do that. You got to be willing to sacrifice. You got to be willing to be due diligence and keep focus. And unfortunately, you're going to have to start with your young people. You got precious little resources. I know we have people in prison, but with these resources that you don't have enough to keep kids from going to prison, how can you waste them or spend them or share them on those who are there? I mean, at some point in time, you got to realize Yeah, I'm with you now specifically because I want to pick your brain a little bit, if you don't mind, specifically for black men, because I think some of the challenges are a little unique for for the brothers. So what do you see as some of the particular challenges that black men have in addressing some of the things that you speak of? Well, you can see one of our biggest problems in the United States is business. We don't have viable business. I'm not talking about business where you try to buy wholesale from the Chinese and go open up a retail spot and Chinese not going to give you family prices. They're not going to do that. We have to have viable businesses that's going to compete, mm-hmm. especially compete and control the consumptibles that you yourself pay for mm-hmm. in these large in these large megaplexes where blacks exist. 
And like I said before, these these foreigners coming in, and they you can't do that in that country. You ain't going to no, you're not going to Lebanon to open up a gas market. You're not going to Egypt and open up a gas market and sell all those things and take out that money and send them back to New York or send them back to South Carolina. They're not going to allow that. Now, to your point, brother, because I'm right here with you, to your point, as many black women that are walking around here with hair weaves, black women should own that business. I mean, they should own the hair weave business. The, the hair should be coming through to black women in this country. But from my understanding, I'm not a woman. But from my understanding, when you go to some of these places to buy the hair, they're all Asian women and people selling them this hair. We're completely locked out of that market. But are the biggest consumers of hair weaves? Well, you know, here we go. Well, yeah, you absolutely. But here's the point. You got to be willing to do out-of-the-box things. You just, like I say, you got to be able to manufacture and produce those things, and you're not going to be able to do it here. The most likely place for you to do it is in West Africa, mm-hmm. in an English-speaking country, not the French countries. Like Liberia not or someplace. Your Benin, yeah. Not your Cote d'Ivoire, a Liberia, a yeah. Ghana, a Nigeria. Right. That's the way you get... That's that's the way you get even kill or even better so than they are because you may you may wear that hair you may want to start selling that hair but who's making that hair? Right. I keep telling you these people are not going to give you those fair chances. And then when you start asking about it, they're going to say English, English, small, small. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your thinking, brother. And so if you had to leave us with some wisdom in terms of something practical that we can begin to do to turn it around for ourselves, what would you say? Well, the least thing that you can do is this. This whole idea about all black folks coming together is crazy. That ain't going to happen. No <laughs> other ethnic group in the world depends right, on Right, right. What you do is get a like-minded group of people. Mm-hmm. Then you start targeting things. Another thing, our children. We have to provide our children with all the necessary resources where they can come out and compete. They cannot just stay in public schools. you got to have choice. Mm-hmm. You I have agree with to that. have choice, which also includes full vouchers. Then you got to start directing our children into these high-paying fields. You got to become more doctors, more engineers. If you had a business that's doing the things like I just got through laying out and doing it right, you got to have engineers. Well, you want to hire your own engineers because it makes sense. Your own engineers is going to raise a family. They're going to keep taking care of the neighborhood. Going to provide the things necessary for their kids in order to end this cycle. That's what it has to do. You have to do. I'm sorry. It's going to take sacrifice, due diligence, and focus. I'm with you 100%, brother. On the school choice, I totally agree with you now. You got to break the old guard Democrats for that because they got school choice on lockdown. They're not allowing that through at all. School choice is a very Republican idea. Yeah, but you got to break through that old guard Democratic thinking that is walking around in Congress and refuse to let a measure like school choice go forward in our community. So that that right there is telling not. Go ahead. It's not just at the congressional level. It's your vanguard organization like NAACP. Yes. Your Urban League and the ones that always have the voice that's speaking for black folks saying that, no, this is what you should be doing. You should run them out of town. I totally agree with you. Amen, brother. You made my day. I appreciate your call. Thank you very much for calling in. And I am really happy to hear some of the ideas that you shared. Thank you, sir. All right. Have a good day. All right. So, Michelle, I'm going to put it over to you now to introduce. Wow. To us, wow. yes, <laughs> your <laughs> special guest who is here with us today. So over to you, Michelle. Thank you, Robert. I just want to give that gentleman just a, a really big shout out because he touched upon, and that's the reason this is such a huge subject. And, you know, he touched upon several different things that we could spend shows and shows just talking about. So I would say thank you. So what I thought about today 
when I think about doing my thought of the day, and we're really talking about from cradle to prison pipeline, I wanted to kind of tackle a bit bit of the cradle side and really talk about where we stand. So let me run through some things. At the top of the show, Robert had some statistics from NPR. Let me just run through a couple of these. African Americans now constitute nearly 1 million of the total 2.3 million people incarcerated. African Americans are incarcerated nearly six times the rate of whites. Together, African Americans and Hispanics comprise 58% of all prisoners in 2008. And that basically makes up approximately a quarter of the U.S. population. Now, that was in 2008. But this is one that really got me that I thought would put all of this in context when we think about the numbers and we think about the enormity of this situation on a global perspective. To give a lens on this, think about this. Data in India, looking at the data in India, a country of 1.2 billion people. Now, I think we're at maybe 300, 300 million or something like that right now. The country in total has around 380,000 people in jail, prisoners. So 1.2 billion people have only 380,000 prisoners. And in fact, there are more African-American men incarcerated in the U.S. than the total prison population in India, Argentina, Canada, Lebanon, Germany, Japan, Finland, Israel, and England combined. Okay? So I just want, as Robert says, let that sink in a little bit, that the population of these nations, all of those together, that our prison population of African-American young men, young and old men, is more than that than these countries combined, okay? So what I wanted to add to the show today was some of our conversation and language and insight about what we need to have and hear for ourselves, our children, our parents, and our teachers. Why? Because in my mind, this is where it starts. These are the primary gardeners of our inner soul, the young inner soul seed, if you want to think of that. When I think of my mom and I think of what she did in my life, she seeded certain values and certain things in my soul, in my spirit, in my this is how you're going to move forward in the world, and these are your good and your bad references. And I think that if we're going to start tackling this issue, we have got to tackle it from all arenas. And one of the ones that I think is most important, the cradle side. And so what I thought would be great today is I wanted to bring on a young man, our guest, and I'm going to call him young. <laughs> our guest today is Shakuri Shar. And the reality is is that I want him to be able to bring insight from experience. Because let me explain real quickly. In 1990, 18 years old, Shikari um, Carpentier was arrested for his part as an unarmed lookout 
at a very high-profile um, spur-of-the-moment robbery by a large group of teens that resulted in a tragic death of a young man, a young tourist, Brian Watkins. He was convicted under the felony murder rule, and under that rule, he was sentenced to 25 years to life with six other teens. What happens is the felony murder rule transfers culpability to accomplices for any death that occurs during certain felonies, regardless of that person's role in the crime. So that happened, and Shakuri Shar accepts, and he has now, with legal aid and legal support and a tremendous amount of organized support, he has been released after 23 years. And what this young man is doing now, he is the founder and executive director of a social justice media series called From Bars to Beyond. And despite being incarcerated at this very young age, he earned his GED, two Bachelor of Science degrees, and a master's degree in professional studies. He is a writer, and from what I've learned, a man with a deep sense of purpose to bring transformative change at risk youth and bring inspirational content to the market. And so I felt, what better person to have on to talk to us and have this conversation about what is the language and the conversation that we need to have with our gardeners who are seeding our children. So I want to say, Shakuri, welcome. Thank you. That was uh, quite a heartwarming introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So, you know, let's get started because we've got, you know, this subject is so big and I want you to be able to tell us, you know, give us your insights. And so... I was thinking about starting off with one of the really deep questions, but, you know, I'll start off with just a, a larger one. Really, tell me what is the conversation, the general conversation that we need to be having right now? The gentleman that just spoke, he was a guest. I mean, he was one of our caller-ins, and he talked about a lot of different remedies. But what is the conversation that we need to be having as a community now about, and what's the most important thing that we need to be thinking about right now from your perspective? I would say that we need to have a conversation about raising the bar of expectation regarding the population of young people who have a criminal justice past and being able to um, inspire them to build up their own potentials, their own uh, self-esteem and uh, confidence in a way that the ceiling that is above them isn't, you know, set at the first floor. So, in other words, mm -hmm. you know, what we have now is such a low expectation of success by people who have been affected by the criminal justice system that there's no wonder that the recidivism rate is as high as it is. So right. we, we right. really need right. to um, increase our, our uh, you know, the standards of what it means to be successful post-incarceration. Right. And, and, but, you know, you touch upon something. It's also about raising the bar of the expectations prior to that, correct? that you want to be able to, we need to be able to instill some sense of security in our youth, correct? Yeah, I think it, it cuts across the board. I mean, pre, during, post, you know, 
I think that because we're so disinvested in the future of our young people that, and they see that, believe me, they really see how how much we're disinvested in them, that they tend to have, they tend to follow the same expectations themselves. So, mm. I mean, you, and you don't have to, you know, go across too many cities in the, around the country to realize how the confidence level of young people in uh, our country is about their future. Mm. And how does that, how, what, how, do, how do you think sex things? What does that um, mean for our children and their decision-making? I think it makes them careless. I think that when they feel that they live in a society or community that uh, really doesn't care, why should they? Right, right, right. And so where does that start? Does, are you, do, you, do we start with parenting? And what are you going to what do you say to the young mother that, you know, is having a child and that child is five? And what, what does a young mother need to be saying to their child? What do parents need to be doing with their children from your perspective? I think even before they say anything to their child, they need to they need to understand the culture that their child is embracing and that they're gravitating toward and that they're, you know, finding ways of expressing themselves. Uh, because if you don't understand how, what's going through the mind of your child, especially an adolescent or a teenager, then you, you really won't know how to communicate with them and, and have them connect with you and understand where you're coming from. So I think there's, there's already a disconnection in terms of, of culture, of subculture, of language, and even emotional. There are, there's emotional barriers. A lot of kids would, would, would tell you, you know, my, my mom don't understand, my dad don't understand. They already have this, this sense of disconnect between themselves and their parents that they don't really, they, they can't really value the advice or the, you know, even the loving guidance of their parents or elder in their community. Okay, so now you've just described a gap. And tell me about, first of all, how, how you're going about dealing with that gap, but then how do people in general, how does that household, you know, the person who says, you know, my son... And I've tried to do all the right things in his life, but he just seems to be heading in a different path. How does one fill that gap or or reach out with that hand that will give a, a better guidance? I think it, it goes back to what I was I was trying to say, that parents need to listen. You know, sit down with your child mm-hmm. or go out with him somewhere where, you know, he maybe he usually attends or likes to go. And... You know, the child can give mom or dad a tour. You know, like, you know, this is where I like to play basketball. Um, And then just, you know, have a conversation and just listen. Listen to what your child is interested in, what they like, what they, you know, how their day evolves, you know, a day in the life of your teenage son. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just do that on a regular basis. Because that's how you're going to get your child to really open up to you and tell you the things that you would need to be better informed as a parent and um, be able to have the, the tools necessary to give them the guidance that would resonate with them. Right, right, right. It, it makes sense, but, but it seems to not be happening. And so 
what I'm trying to figure out is what more do we need to do? Now, you've got a great program, and what do you see your program being able to do? And so tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so From Bars to Beyond is a nonprofit organization that I started almost a year ago. And, you know, one of the things that we envision is, you know, to raise the bar of expectation, uh, particularly from young people who were criminal justice involved in one way or another, and to give them some, some insight and hope into how they can create their own success stories. So what, we're, what we've been trying to do is to spotlight men and women who did time behind the wall productively, came home with a plan, and now the, the success stories we rarely hear about. So when, you know, young people have an opportunity to see someone who was at one time in their shoes, and despite, you know, all the challenges that come with having a criminal justice path, that they were able to overcome those obstacles and um, become quite successful in pursuing their aspirations. And Mm -hmm. the key to this is asking how did they do it? What were the ingredients to their success? So, you know, those are the elements that we want to share with young people to kind of give them some some hope and motivation that if someone who was in your shoes or probably even even worse shoes was able to do it, what's your excuse? Right, 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 exactly. Are are we missing, is there something that's missing today with the conversation that we're having with young African-American young men? Is there a conversation that's happening? Because it seems so prolific that, you know, we're, we... Most of our young men are in jail and who have promise. Is there something, a conversation that we're missing is not being done? I think that the obvious answer is, of course, yes, there is. What that conversation is could be in the U.S., African-Americans only comprise 13% of the U.S. population, but they're 60% or more of the incarcerated population. And Absolutely. The, the question is, is, is why? Why right. are we so disproportionately represented in prison uh, as opposed to colleges or, you know, the, the, or the workforce, you know, or the, the affluent or the wealthy? So, you know, I think some of the conversation that we, we, we're ha- we need to have around this um, needs to include the why. Mm-hmm. about, you know, how this came to, to be the state of affairs in our current time. What can we do to, you know, make that clear, you know, for the public to understand? You know, I think it's a conversation that not only needs to be, it not only needs to involve, you know, our communities, but the broader public as well. Exactly. Brother Shakuri, this is Robert. I want right. to thank you for being here today. I really appreciate your presence. And I have a caller. I have a caller for you. Caller 201-321. Go ahead with your comment or question. Greetings. This is Adas. I'm calling from New Jersey. Um, I appreciate the conversation and the dialogue because I'm actually in a situation right now where I'm pulling out all stops to try to reach the soul of my my youngest child or my youngest mm-hmm. son He's 18. He got in trouble his senior year in high school, which really made mm. no sense. I know it was a result of peer, peer pressure, the peer group, 
and not making wise choices because he started to smoke marijuana, which I right. do believe a lot of the drugs that's invading our communities are being deliberately placed there to distract our young people. That's right. Um, mm. School systems, you know, are set up as pipelines. It's obvious if you work inside, you see it. There's a big disconnect between the adults like myself and the the students that that are from the same ethnic group. They, for some strange reason, they don't want to receive the information coming from a black woman. And mm. I, I mean, I've noticed it with black boys, and I've definitely noticed it with um, Latinas. They don't respect us. But my charge is the black male child because I'm biased. I am the mother of all black males, and I believe that they have so much potential, but they just don't believe it. It's a it's a psychological thing. It's a mm-hmm. um, a matter of self esteem. It's a matter of how they view themselves to the outside world. I think our boys have been brainwashed. Just have low expectations. Like if it's not sports, then it's rap. And we already know mm-hmm. that the consciousness that's coming from the music industry right now is vibrationally right. so low. That's right. It's, it's like a, it's nothing. That's it's right, mean. sister. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. And, and 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 I'm coming. I'm coming from my own personal experience. As you know, I came up during the time when it was hip hop, real hip hop, old school <laughs> hip hop, and it was it was a consciousness. Now, as a mother and looking at the next generation, I'm listening to what they're listening to, and I'm saying that's where the problem is coming from. That message is turning them into ignorant people. Mm. What they're seeing, the video, the images that they're seeing, is all ignorant. Their heroes now have become the guy on the corner who's driving a car who's giving them more poison to put out there. I have a major problem with them, and I have a major problem with the local politicians who belong, most of them belong to a certain party, who are brainwashing our kids. So right. we're, we're pretty much... Do you, do, you, do, you tell, do you tell that to your son? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm telling it to him now, because he was just and, and actually what's his, listening. What, what's his, his reaction? His re- his reaction is is fright and flight. Mm-hmm. His reaction is a defense. He doesn't realize that each and every time that something happens and I have to step in there, I'm the one that have to come and clean up the mess. Mm-hmm. Right. He doesn't get but that I think, yet. I think what he's, the perspective that he has uh-huh. is that here's someone is who is attacking something that I'm embracing. So already there's there's a conflict. There's, there's, you know, a you versus me type of dichotomy. So, you know, what I was Let suggesting me... earlier is that mm-hmm. there needs to be a language that develops in making a connection that doesn't make the young person feel they're being attacked or they're being challenged in a way that they feel you know, either belittled or, or like they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I agree. And, you know, this is... Just, you know, just, let me just say something to you. Like, you know, I, I have had many... I have set up many opportunities for him to receive counseling, and even I put him in substance abuse programs so that he would stop smoking the marijuana because I realized whenever he smoked it, his judgment was so off. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. he, would, he would just turn into a completely different person. And what we, all of the best programs that I found when we got there, it was young white women 
who pretty much was offering the counseling, who already had a preconceived notion that they were dealing with a thug, which was not. Mm. Yeah, yeah. My oh. son is just as bright in certain areas as I am. My son is just as gifted as both I'm myself sure. and his father, who is in the home. So he's not coming from a home where there's no family support. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. still have had major difficulties in finding a place to go where, okay, you don't want to communicate with your parents because it's a clash of class yeah. generations. But is there any other place where you could go and sit down and talk to a brother? You know, ma'am, or even ma'am, I, I, your son at his age, I, mm. I came from a very caring and supportive household you know, where there were no drugs. It was a very spiritual family. You know, Mm -hmm. we espoused the principle of respect. And yet, Mm -hmm. the streets were more attractive to me. I get it. You know, I get it. it. It's not, it's not, it it may not be the, the fault of the parents for leading the child into a path of, you know, negative consequences. But sometimes it, it doesn't take much to divert a a young person's attention into unproductive activity. Exactly. It doesn't yeah. take much. Right, because the peer group... And peer group is real. The peer group yep. is real because... My my son is still the type of person who doesn't he doesn't go a lot of places because there's where we live right now and and it's a working community but you know you're always surrounded by other communities you have young people that are jumping out of cars with guns to rob each other I mean pretty mm-hmm. much it's like we have we have it when I say we I'm talking about the community at large mm-hmm. the community at large our our kids have really been indoctrinated to turn on each other. To, to not be supportive unless they're, they're, they're identifying with a group, then really most of the identification is a result because they're trying to protect themselves from the other group. Mm-hmm. Of the other have, group, right. Um, right, and the other group look just like them. Right. Let me step in for a second because I think that this is this in, and it's it's veered a, a little bit, but this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted to do, and I so love that you've called in because here's the thing. And Shakri has asked a couple of times or spoken about this a couple of times, but here's what this is. A, I have a question, and then I want to also talk about what we're missing in our communities. What neutral ground, the ground that where you're not parent, where you're not, what neutral ground have you found with your son? And I mean where he's guiding you. Not you got him because no matter what, I, I, I'm I come from that spirit of mother, that mothering spirit. I don't have any children, but I'm mother. And sometimes mm. I have to remember how to be friend, confidant, and listener. Mm-hmm. And so, what have you done or asked your son to take you on a journey where you have no opinion of it? You're just you're the you're the confidant, and you're letting him expose you because I think that's what Shikari is talking about when he talks about finding that space. It's not the space where you can teach him. It's and it's hard that's hard. That's hard because we know mm-hmm. the future. We we know what can happen. So I'm asking you, what space can you and your son be in where he's guiding you? Well you know? and, and just to give a little history, um I'm seeing 
I'm seeing myself 30 years ago. The only difference is I'm the female and he's the male. When I didn't think that my parents were understanding what I was dealing with. My my right. son's journey right now is me looking back to look forward. I'm actually I, I, I I'm actually a school teacher. I took my son mm-hmm. out of private school and I put him in a local system for three years. It was the wrong time, the wrong location, mm. the worst choice to date of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. paid a king ransom and I still don't see it in the sight. But I know it's coming, and it's going to be better than what we are today. I'm beginning to understand what happened and why it happened. Some of it is some of it was politics, okay? Because I work in the system. You would think that if you were in the system, that you would be treated a little differently. No, if you are an activist or you advocate for our kids, you're saying people would turn around and try to destroy you. When they can't get you to mm-hmm. go after sure. that thing closest to you, and it became my son, who mm-hmm. pretty much was very popular in itself because he was he had Division One potential in two, even three sports as he had applied himself, and pretty mm-hmm. much okay. he was used. He was used, and as soon as he was done, they kicked him to the curb, and they used the situation as a reason to not help him move forward. So as a result, I noticed that my son is, is he's, he's depressed, he's confused. He's trying to find his place in life. Mm-hmm. And he's still very well connected to his peer group, who is walking through like sleep sheets. I'm beginning mm-hmm. to see, it took me a while, what he saw each and every day when he went into the school. Mm-hmm. I did not understand know that so many of our Children, and I'm going to say children, our children, are so lost. Exactly. You know, I, right. I, I, I speak to counselors and people who I went to school with, and we're all in this, we're all in this, we're all on the battlefield, boots on the ground. What could we do? Number one, we don't have any black psychologists. I'm sorry, we need some really good black psychologists, mental health experts. Yes, yes. Who's not connected to nonprofits? Who's just letting somebody sign a list and they coming in to buy them some pizza and that's it? That's right. No, we need some really, really good people who are going to not only help them learn better coping skills and life skills, but also tell them who they really are. Exactly. Because no one right. has the chance to do that. So, um, the families are not in time. You, you mind if I, if I right. kind of chime in here? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think that can be part of the conversation and solution, but I don't think it will get far. And and here's why. I think young people already have a distrust of, you know, people with quote-unquote authority, right? Because they already feel that you don't understand where I'm coming from, what I'm dealing with, you know, or what I enjoy. You know, you're, you're, you're not in my circle. Okay, so you don't you don't have uh, you don't have club membership into you know my network of of peers, but what I think they may be able to get you know some resonance with are with mentors, men who are maybe a little older than them, but they learned their lesson, they've gotten over that hump, and they've achieved uh, a level of success in their lives 
that a younger person may look at and say, oh, wow, you know, he, um, he, he got through, you know, a bunch of stuff that, you know, would otherwise have landed him somewhere else. You know, how did he do that? Or how did she do that? And that's when you may have a, a younger person look up to someone who is like that. And if that person is willing to be a mentor to the younger person, I think that's when you can now begin to help shaping and shifting, you know, the life trajectory that they're on. But, you know, once you, like, you know, you have a, a, a young man or, or young lady sit before a counselor, they're already in that mindset where, okay, here goes someone else who's going to tell me how I should be living, right? And they're not going to tune in into, you know, some of the really valuable lessons that that person may be. But, Brother Shikari, but Shikari, they will listen to you, though. Mm-hmm. They will listen to you. Exactly. exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm. That's exactly my point. I've I've spoken to Brother Shikari. Where are you? You you mean in terms of location? Yes. I'm. I'm in. I'm in New York, in Queens, New York. Um, Well, I'm. I'm in. How do you? How? Okay. Let's say that we don't have a program like the from bars to beyond, right? How do we build that network where at least it could be expanded, where, you know, mm-hmm. at least get the kids' attention, and then they could be like, wait a minute, all right, okay, this ain't Tom Joyner, and it's not C.U. Harvey, but we got Brother Shikari right <laughs> exactly. here. Okay? Exactly. Okay? Right. 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 is one point, because really, he knows, he just took out, he just took off, right? He was listening to everything that was being said said of mm-hmm. BTR until I got on the phone. Mm-hmm. So no matter what he's doing, he's playing in his head. I know him. I had him. I live with him, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what I'm saying is mine is not enough because now when he leaves, he's outside mm-hmm. around his ear group who's not getting this. He knows everything that I'm going right. to glean at some point in time today. I'm going to repeat something. Like, I can't wait to watch 13. I can't wait. My husband was sitting there for a moment. We're yeah. doing our due diligence. Mm-hmm. But the peer group don't right. know about you. They know about right. the public right. Right. They know about the probation office. Right. They know about the right. it. Right. The food right. coaches who just played them and kick them to How do you get out? That's right. Well, you know what? I think also, I think one of the biggest things and one of the things that um, Shakari and I have spoken about and I've, I've talked about often is what we don't have in our communities anymore. And I'm assuming that we're all above the age of 35. And I remember when I came up, you had community centers, you had swim mm. centers, you had gyms, you had all of these things where your kids, you, you knew that they could participate and enjoy themselves amongst their mm-hmm. peers, but mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, hold on, because I don't, I don't... Mentally stimulating environment. Yeah, Michelle, I'm, and you know, I love you, sis, and I don't want to, I don't want to cut you off, but I want to stay on this point that the sister raises, because her son will listen to Shikari. He will. He, 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 he's absorbing what he gets from his mother and father, but he will listen to what Brother Shikori has to say. So her question is, how does yep. she bring that right. wisdom that Brother Shikori has in the face and image of Brother Shikori to her son? That's her question. That's what she's seeking. And yeah. Brother and Brother Shakuri, right. you can help her with that. And that's what I was getting to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they all want to be businessmen, Brother Shakuri. You do know that, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because that's <laughs> I think I think uh, you know at the end of the day, uh, they they can have this uh, poster in their mind where they may see, for example, someone like Damon John, um, who is a successful business owner, you know, and and replace the face who is behind that business suit with their own. But you know, that's just a poster. You know, how do you make that poster into a reality? And when they don't have those steps, that blueprint in mind, then, you know, that poster just remains a fantasy. It does, brother. And so, like, you know... And I, and I, I don't mean to cut right, you off. So I, don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but I just want to say mm-hmm. that... Because I, I hear the sister so clearly. I hear it. And it's I remember when I was younger, we would have after-school programs, you know, and, or the after-school uh, right. special. They need to know that at 3.30, when they come home from school every day, that they can get on a call with Brother Shakuri. Mm-hmm. They can get on a call with you, and it could be 20 brothers on the call or 200. But a place where they can go and just mm-hmm. talk and hear you and relate to you and let you listen to them because they know that if they tell you something that you're going to understand what they're saying. So what I hear her asking for is what is the outlet? What is the program? What's the number is what I hear her saying that she can plug her son into so that he can get a daily dose of what you can offer him. You feel what I'm saying, brother? Right, right. What's the space? That's what she's asking for. I hear you, Mom. I hear you, too. I love it. I hear you, too. I can't can't imagine being being this mom who sees the brilliance in her son, but also sees the pitfalls. It's kind of like he's skirting. And also what she's saying, Michelle, she's baby. Don't. Yeah, she said it. She said, my son was listening to everything y'all were saying until I started listening. That was a key sentence. (laughs) He That's was right. he was right That's there with us until he knew his mama was listening, and then he checked out. Yep. You see what I'm saying? Yep. And it's what Brother Shakuri started by yep. saying. You have to yep. understand yep. the subculture that your children are operating in. That's exactly what the brother was saying earlier. And so I hear what she's saying. There's a gap yep. there that Brother Shakuri yep. is filling right now that she's just trying to connect him to her son. That's mm-hmm. what it is. And the funny thing That's about right. it, right? That's you want to hear something? You want to hear something that 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 goes unnoticed, if I come home and he's with his friends and they're near my house and, you know, I got to tell them I don't want kids congregating out on my steps or whatever, but <laughs> you still want to keep them close because you know, it's dangerous out there, yeah. right? I spot yeah. check them. And do you know they, they will sit and listen mouth wide open and my son will be the only one saying, come on, come on, come on. You're always doing that. You're always doing that, right? But they will listen. Your kids... Mm. You just want to listen to someone else and not their parents, especially if their peers are like, yo, mm-hmm. your mom this, your exactly. mom that. Cause I've listened to how I'm talking the way that I'm talking now because I deal with them on a regular basis. We are community right, right. to watch and scratch each other's back because mm-hmm. I can get mm-hmm. people kids to listen to me. And they're like, right, but wow. see, you're, you're 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 more than halfway there because you're being proactive about it. There are too many parents that are inactive in trying to reach out to their their kids because you know the um the disconnect is almost so total that they 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 don't even know how to begin a conversation. And some of them, they're, they're even afraid of having a conversation with their kids. 
So at, at least you're you're on that path of reaching out and getting your son to be responsive in some sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Shakuri, one of the uh, most important questions that I had and what I'd like to ask you is what would you say to the 18-year-old you today? Because you talk about people don't know how to say or they're afraid. So tell us what would Shakuri Shar today say to you 18 years and at 18 before you, you were incarcerated? That's not an easy question to answer. And I think because so there, there's no one answer for every that fits every situation. In general, the one thing that I would have probably told my 18-year-old self is, look, kid, go find yourself a mentor, someone who you trust their opinion and listen to you and understand you and give you some direction. Because I think the key is having the trust by a young person uh, with the person that they're looking for some guidance in. So, you know, maybe I may not have, you know, the the right answers that the person may be able to, to ride with because it just doesn't fit their situation. I may not know them enough to, you know, to give them um, direction. People can always talk about, son, you need to be patient. Uh, son, you need to be um, your surroundings or who you hang out with. But young people already know this. Uh-huh. They, they already know, you know, most of those uh, general statements that we make to them all the time. But sometimes they, what they need is a very specific conversation about a specific place, time, or person that they're involved with. Right, like and a so, big brother, like a big brother, right, exactly. and relationship. And but that's why I'm talking to you right now because what I am gleaning from everything is that there's not enough of you around, and and I'm not talking about just even <laughs> volunteering because I've been right. to some of the best programs, and I'm like, wait a minute, these people got a nice office. They got labs, you know, they got drivers, but they mm. can't connect. They're not talking right. the same language. And it's not these contracts, the same way how they got a contract, and they're able to build an insurance company. Why can't our people, right. like, the, like the man said earlier, we could collectively do for ourselves. This is one major area. Most of our communities are Absolutely. in shingles. Because our families are falling apart because of those external pressures. So how do we right. really do this? Well, you know what? And that and that's the thing. And so what I want to do, because we are, you know, we're coming to our time and whatnot, what I want to do is I want to thank you. Call it, Mom, we never got your name, but I will say uh, Mother because USA. My love name is Adasa, but because you just... <laughs> If you give all the contact information, I will talk to anybody off the air because we're in an area where we need to help. That's right. Yeah. And with that, let me do this because I want to bring us to a close. I have to bring us to a close because we, we, Robert 
and I have not learned how to condense or control time at this point. But I want Don't to love me into that. Mom came on and opened herself up. And opened her story. Well, I don't know if you're an alchemist of time, but I'm not an alchemist of time. So, but um, I want to thank you so, so much because you have brought such important realness to this because it right. is critical, yeah. and that's why I wanted to open this up and talk about the conversation that we need to have as the guard. I'd like to call us the gardeners because we are seeds. That's My mom used to always talk about me as she was planting the seeds so I could be a proactive individual for the future. And I want to thank you for we having should. the show because this is about soul ties, you know. Exactly. You're right. Mm. Yes. I'm trying to prevent that. I'm trying to prevent having to go through what... what your grandmother went through when she would have to go visit her son That's right. behind bars. That's right. That's right. Because oh, it should wow. not be the Yes, you're right, sister. And yeah, we, we haven't gotten a chance absolutely. to speak about soul ties yet, but you're absolutely right. That was the intention of today's conversation was to break the soul ties because not only is it running in our generation, but it runs through generations. This repetitive cycle of incarceration yeah. is running through families. It's mm-hmm. running through mine. And that was what I was trying to lay out earlier. Mm-hmm. So it is all about the soul ties and what we do every day that breaks that tie, not only for ourselves, but again, for our families. So we're going to continue this conversation probably next week because there's so much to say in the time that we have. So, so I appreciate you calling. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. What time does your show come on? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got to follow up on it. No worries. No worries. I have no other. No worries. Because of you, sister, we're going to definitely continue this next week, 10 o'clock every Saturday. We're on for two hours every Saturday from 10 to noon. And we're going to pick this conversation up and continue moving forward next Saturday. So if you have time, call back again. Maybe Brother Shakuri can be here too. And we can keep the conversation going because there are lots of resources out there, but there are also lots of things that we have to do ourselves. And as the brother said earlier, who called, it's about our own. And and you mentioned it too, sister. It's the consciousness that we have to up level. It's our Mm -hmm. own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's work that we have to do. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I know, I know people that want to do it, but we're not coming together. Mm -hmm. I I know people, if they had the means to put it together and most of these other programs, they would pretty much be taking their business away. I'm talking about getting these young entrepreneurs to understand, you know, you can be a businessman. You're just looking in the wrong direction. Right. They need mentors. They need survivors, real life survivors. If they listen, yeah. well, they now, now, that. now you'll get their attention. Yeah, believe me, you'll you'll get their attention with that. Mm-hmm. I think if if, if young so, people had a space where they could express themselves in a way that's productive, mm-hmm. um, if they had that resource where they could do that, it would you know diminish all the opportunities toward the the, the negative behavior and consequences that they tend to find themselves in. And could I, could I just add one thing, just, just, just to let you know where I'm, where I'm coming from? I'm in a position now. I've been in a position for a long time, but I'm in a, a position now where I am spotting the children because I, I, I happen to work in a school. I'm just right, where you came from. And I see parents who do not know what to do. To do, yeah. Well, you know yeah. what? Hold on, guys. 
Here's the space that we're in, and we do have time, and we don't have time. We're actually running out of time now, and I don't want to have to because we're going to – we'll have to cut around the conversation, um, and I don't want to have to do that. So what I want to do is I want to say thank you again for our caller so that we can then pick this up, and what we will do is pick this up next week, and then I want to say thank you to Shakuri. Shakuri, thank you because obviously – you have some, your message and what you're doing is resonating. And so I want to thank right. you also for being a part of this call and being a part of our answers because that's what, as everyone knows me by now, I like the practical side of things sometimes and I like to be right. a part of the answer or the solution. So I want to say thank you and, um, and I'll talk to you offline and see if you can join us at another time, you know, next week or so. Sure, absolutely. Okay. Um, but- but the thanks goes to you for uh, opening this conversation and, and making it, you know, it's again, an, uh, a great addition to the conversations we need to be having. You're welcome, Brother Shakuri. Do you have just a few, do you have just a few more minutes, Brother Shakuri? Or we, have we taken too much? Because I, I do have, uh, we're way over time, but this is worth it because the conversation mm-hmm. is rich. I do want to ask you, you spent 23 years incarcerated, and I want to ask you, how would you describe how you were quote unquote institutionalized in during that t- those 23 years and how were you able to break that institutionalization once you were released i believe michelle said 18 months ago right yeah wow that's tough man you know it's it's hard to describe your institutionalization when you're inside the institution <laughs> so mm-hmm. kind of like asking you know you know, you live in society, so how will you socialize? Mm-hmm. But just kind of reflecting on, in hindsight, how I was able to maneuver or navigate through this minefield called prison. Right. There was just a lot of expectations, uh, conflict. So when you're always in this weary mode where you're trying to be vigilant and not cross paths mm-hmm. with you know, certain situations that can potentially blow up and end up being very negative situation for you. So I, I, I developed this constant expectation of something about to happen very wrong. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I brought out with me after I was released. You know, this constant expectation, okay, is something going down now or, you know, where should I place myself physically so that if something does go down, I'm not, like, in the midst of it. So, it's, you know, I, I, I literally had to keep telling myself I'm no longer in an environment where I have to keep such vigilance and or distrust because something it can be expected to happen at any time. So I think those things can only come out after your release. And then you start noticing some of your own behaviors, and then you, you're questioning, well, you know, why am I acting this way? Mm-hmm. Because that's no longer necessary. Right. Not that it was uh, absolutely necessary on the inside, but because you've been habituated to, you know, some of the things that occur behind the wall on an almost daily basis, you kind of tend to bring those, those paradigms outside with you as well. But here's the reason. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to. 
Okay, yeah, that's true. I was going to say the reason why I'm asking is because Michelle said in her introduction of mm -hmm. you that not only did you get your GED, but if I heard correctly, two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree. So there... And right, and that's that's the point I was, uh, I, I was going to touch on. You know, one of the things I think that needs to happen with, you know, people who are in a difficult situation like um, doing time in prison mm -hmm. is to think independently. Mm -hmm. Because once you start absorbing how you're expected to behave uh, in terms of the prison code and some of the attitudes, you know, the us versus them dichotomy and stuff like that, then you kind of like fall in line with is doing and most of the time it's not productive. Mm -hmm. So I, I literally had to like pull myself out of the fear of not conforming to that code and being more independent-minded with my own future in mind. And when I was able to do that, I actually found that I, I earned a lot more respect for my peers because they saw that I wasn't Ooh. afraid of, wow. of falling in line with what everybody else was doing. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is, is, is really important. And it's even a lesson for young people out here that real courage is when you're able to say, you know what, my mind is telling me that's not cool. So instead of falling in line with what, you know, may be popular, despite the negative consequences it may have, I'm strong and courageous enough to say I'm not going down that path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing but respect for what you're saying, brother, mm -hmm. because if I hear you that's correctly, it. you know, there are some, when you're a brother incarcerated like you were and you're, achieving the way that you achieved while you were behind the wall, as you put it, there are going to be haters. And it's a metaphor for exactly what happens out here too. There are going to be people who see you mm -hmm. trying to better yourself and they hate you for it because they haven't found that place within themselves to better themselves. So how did you fight through that on a daily basis to reach some of the, particularly the academic accomplishments that you've made? How did you fight through the hateration? For the most part, I ignored it. I ignored it because um, I really had to make a value judgment. Mm -hmm. On one hand, there's the opportunities and um, doors that could open if I invest my time and my focus and energy on that side of the scale, as opposed to being afraid of what people may say or do because of the narrow path that I've chosen and invest in my fears or my, you know, lack of independence. And so it was a value judgment. This side of the scale was heavier. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, the, the side that talked about my long-term future was much heavier. And so that's where I invested a lot of my time and focus. So I, I don't want to put time and energy in something that's not going to bring a return in my favor. And, you know, I mm. had to have these discussions in my own mind about, you know, how I could make that work mm -hmm. and how to bring inspiration and motivation to my, you know, my own thinking to go down that path where there's light at the end of the tunnel. Right. So, well, I guess, I guess it's, it's just a matter of having these conversations with yourself and just listening to what's being said. And then, you know, you, you make an honest and genuine assessment about where you should take it from there. 
Yeah, I respect that 100%, 100%. I think you uh, have a lot of, and this is what the sister heard in your voice, which is why she called in. There's a lot in you that is necessary for the brothers out here. A lot that you have to share. And she was reaching out earlier to tap some of that for her son, because there are right, people who right. will listen to me say whatever I'm going to say, but because I've never been incarcerated before and I don't have that experience, exactly what you said earlier, they're going to tune right. out. They're just going to tune out of some of the things that I have to say. Right, so, so right. that's not my audience per se, but that is your audience. You know, the reason why we have our experiences is because it builds an audience for us. There are people that will only hear what you have to say. And so the sister recognized that. Yeah. She recognized that, and that's why she called in, and that's why I have a heart for her, because I heard her reaching for some help for her son. She made some key points. Right. I I did, too. I know you did. That young man has his mother and his father in the home, as did I. Now, Mm -hmm. a lot lot of brothers can't speak to that. So she was letting us know that there is a home environment there. But what you said earlier in the show, and I hope if you're available next week or the next time you can come back, we can pick up on this because you kind of hit it and quit it. But I think there was a lot of wisdom in there. You have to understand the subcultures that are attracting your children and that they're gravitating to. That has to be a conversation. Absolutely. It has to be. And you hit that, Shikori, because once your child knows mm-hmm. that you understand that subculture and that they have your permission on some level, maybe per- permission is not the right word. Oh, but it's a different ballgame. Yeah, it's a different yeah. ballgame, Shikori. That's a game changer. Exactly. That's a, that's a game changer. Exactly. That is key. Yeah. That is key. That is key. Yeah. And we need to dig around in that space a little bit more. We can't do it this week because we're way over time. Absolutely. But Michelle, I'm going to turn it over to you so you can wrap us out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I am just so pleased from a personal perspective that you have been able to come on the show. And I have to thank a, a, a good friend, Nicole Franklin, for making the introduction. And so this was this is kismet. This was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so I just really want to thank you, Shakuri, because you are doing mm-hmm. something amazing. You are um, raising the bar for for our young people out there, and you are offering a place of discovery and a place of safety for them to think and own their own. And again, you know, you have the organization, your executive director and founder of From Bars to Beyond, an organization that is aiming to motivate, support, and guide criminal justice-involved youth to develop their aspirations and pursue their goals. And I think that is wonderful. And thank you for what you've brought to our conversation. And um, we look to speak with you again and hope to, you know, have you on a show in the future. Well, I hope to have you on next week, but if you're not available next week, then let us know when you can come back because I definitely feel like, you know, you have to read the energy and I'm reading the energy of what happened here today. And it lets me know that there's much more to be said. So whenever you would give us the honor of your presence again. I I think I'd I'd love to come on uh, as soon as possible because I think there's a momentum here. So we want to continue that. Exactly. Thank you for that, brother. I appreciate that. So I'll wait to hear from Michelle whenever we can work that out. And in the meantime, have a great day and thank you for joining us again. Okay. All right. You too. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay. So Michelle, I appreciate you. Thank you for the great guest today. Thank you for leading us in this discussion and we will be back again next week. Thank you for all the callers to all the callers who called in, especially mom who called in and really guided our conversation and led it to a place, led it to exactly where it needed to go every day, every week before we 
uh, have this conversation. I always say, you know, I've planned a conversation. I talk to the spirit. I say, I've planned a conversation, but wherever you want to take this, let me yield to where that needs to go. And that is exactly what happened today. It went exactly where it needed to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for that. So thank you. Wonderful. For, yes. I'm grateful that you brought Brother Shakuri here. I'm grateful that mom called in. And I'm glad that the conversation went exactly where it needed to go to touch the soul space and the heart space and to uplevel the consciousness of anyone, anyone who is able to hear this when it's all put together. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our callers. We will see you next Absolutely. week. And we're going to continue this conversation. In the meantime, Yay! I'm... In the meantime, I'm Robert Wesley Branch. Be well, be encouraged, and be inspired every single day of your life. Bye. That's why I never let a man pick out my clothes. Roll up in the town early afternoon. Hey, hey, hey. Looking for the pimp dress, make you swoon. Found a little number in a fancy dress. Hey, 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 hey. Looking like a Mac all up in here. Strong black boss and many girls are hot Pick one, come and show me what you got Everything or nothing if you want to lie to what's cooking She's looking, 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 looking Like a man Everybody dance when I say Don't black fashion and the girls are hot Dancing with each other cause the boys are not Trying to trade numbers for the drinks they bought But what you supposed to drink in a club full of thoughts Don't black fashion and the girls are hot Pick one, come and show me what you got Everything or nothing if you want to lie What's cooking? She looking, 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 looking Like a man Catch my crew just in all black we mobbing, pockets got the monks, so you know we never stopping. Nodding and bobbing, our heads to the beat. You see how we rockin' shows, go and get up out your seat. Life is like a movie when we step up on the stage. I got 50 different styles that I got up on display. We gon' make the party jump, so you know we here to stay. Stacking paper love while y'all on the same page. Come on, light flashing and my click is hot. Pick one, come and show me what you got. Come on, everything or nothing if you want a lot of what's cooking. Cause she looking, 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 looking. Drinks they pop, drinks they pop, drink drinks they pop.
looking, looking, looking like a man. Robert Wesley Branch Show, a roundtable of wisdom, where people from all across the planet, from all walks of life, and from all religious and sacred traditions, convene for spiritual conversation. This show is produced by Robert Wesley Branch Inspired Media.